I actually want to hear from you. I want you to create a laundry list for me. I live in patristic exegesis. And so at this point, it's not abnormal to me. I, I don't, it doesn't bother me in ways that it once did. And so I often will forget, I'll often forget the effects uh, of initial responses, maybe even the shock value that patristic exegesis will uh, provide for us. So I'd like to hear from you when you hear the language patristic exegesis, what are general assumptions that you hear in that? So like, for example, here's one that I constantly hear and I remember, and it's one that I constantly try to push against. The thesis that patristic exegesis is fanciful. No, that, that's not true, but it is an assumption. Right? That, is a, that is a very common assumption that it's fanciful. What are, what are other assumptions when, you, when we hear early Christian hermeneutics or patristic exegesis? What do we hear? I could be out of it. But I think of allegorizing every single little detail. Yeah. Think of yeah, a very true. split field where you have either allegorizing everything or taking everything literally, um, but not ever a blending of the two. Yeah. So either, either allegory only or literal only. Good. What else? Yeah. I, I was going to say the allegory thing as well. And then the, um, the kind of it, going a, a little bit beyond where we would say the gospel is, you know, is, is ingrained throughout every portion of the Old Testament, but they would see like under every single rock that everything is this reference to Christ when the Old Testament authors and readers wouldn't have understood it that way. So Christological readings, Christological readings, even at the expense of authorial intent. Is that what you're trying to say, Connor? Okay. Going off of what Connor said, uh, pulling things out of context, like taking a little part of a verse and merging it with another verse to make one thought from the two. Yep. When yep. the original intent or message of either verse is different from what they're trying to say. Yep. Non contextual readings. Good. What else? Everything is a typology. Yeah, typology through and through. Right, typology everywhere. <clears throat> typology um, everywhere. Yeah, good. What what else? Uh, what other type of assumptions? Uh, yeah, good. Two school division. And I actually want to touch on that here in a moment. Two school division. So I appreciate Aaron uh, mentioning that. Two school division, Antiochian. Versus Alexandria. Alexandria. Uh, what else? What are other assumptions? This is really helpful. You're helping me write an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I were kidding. <laughs> oh gosh. I assume helpful. sometimes they're very aggressive. Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I hear, like, I'm trying to read it as though they're like a calm and partial person, but then. You hear them badmouth their opponents so much. <laughs> There's like aggressive polemics in their exegesis. Yeah. Right. Which makes me question 
Like, yep. it makes me question. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Along those lines of just being narrow minded and not open to anyone else's interpretation or thoughts yeah. in the passage. And then their theology that they base off of the scripture is loaded with analogy to the point of being flawed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, theology, time, scripture, over analogy. Okay, let me turn a corner because that, that was actually real helpful. It, it's helpful to know kind of our assumption blocking it. I'm actually uh, like eight of those that never brought up. Um, so far, <clears throat> so far, given that those were our assumptions before kind of heading into Patricia Gatsby's at large, given that those were some of our assumptions uh, up front, how has your primary source readings and how has our in class discussions? Affected or influenced how you would now go about talking through the Tristan. Well, after reading the uh, interpretive scripture by yep. Paul Flowers. Yeah, Paul Flowers. Flowers. Yeah. Um, he seems to be saying that they, they weren't particularly accountability using one method all yep. the time. He was saying that they were based on, they were basing their interpretation on the theological paradox. Mm -hmm. You can't really pigeonhole like one school being out of way before, one school being little before, but they were mixed. It's good. It's really good. Yeah. What else? How has reading the primary sources and our lectures thus far, right? Because we're I tried to highlight their use of scripture. How has that affected you? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Dean. It's impressed me that when they're appealing to authority, it is the authority of the scriptures. So they're not appealing to the authority of look how beautiful this idea is, or the authority of their place in the church. They're always appealing to the authority of scripture. Yeah, that's good. That is, that is very helpful, especially in modern discourse about the Father, is that their view of the scriptures is quite authoritative, right? It is really authoritative. That, that's helpful to me. But what, what other items kind of have come to mind as a result of our class lectures, as well as your primary scripture? What is stood out that sort of shocked you or surprised you about their exegesis. One thing that really got me and is actually really getting me now, um, especially after reading the, uh, I finished the uh, Lewis Ayers book that you had me read, the amount of effort they put into thinking these topics through and juxtaposing that with how we don't put any thought into these things today in the local church. Um, they worked, and even if they came to wrong conclusions, they were working through these things with incredible effort, 
you can tell a lot of time spent formulating their ideas and you just really don't see that too much anymore. So it's kind of really just, it's amazed me and, and inspired me a little bit in, the, in that way. Yeah, Chris, that's, uh, that's really helpful. Uh, I forget, uh, come on, what's his name? Okay, second person is Rudolph Wolfman. Rudolph Wolfman said, we are at a more privileged station than the early church. Why? Because we can flip on a light switch. That's what he said about the early church. We are in a more privileged state because we can flip on a light switch. According to Christo, that ain't necessarily the case in the sense of they sort of put us to shame at times on how well they have thought through something. That is not to give them credit for, are they right? It's not what we're saying. That's not what I'm saying. It's the amount of thought and care and attention given to the details of the text. Yep, excellent. Chris. Anybody else? So I just, there have been times in, in, in the reading that I, that I have still seen some of the stuff that would seem sort of fanciful based on like modern day hermeneutics. But also in the way that I see the, the, the church fathers doing hermeneutics also seems like the way that some of the New Testament writers did hermeneutics too. And that would still be against how they would teach us how to do it today. Like there, there's still some texts that they pull from the Old Testament that are obviously not, did not, were not originally Christological. They were not understood to be messianic, and yet they were interpreted as that after the after the fact. And it's just interesting to me to see these people that were either direct students of the apostles or, you know, one generation removed from that. Um, I mean, they, they probably learned how to do their exegesis and how to do their hermeneutics from from the apostles themselves or the direct students of the apostles. And it seems. So there's times when I look at it, and I go, man, that seems like a stretch. But then at the same time, if that's how the apostles did their hermeneutics, it, it seems a little bit uh, arrogant to impose, you know, kind of the Boltmann uh, understanding back onto, onto these guys. And so I don't know that I have, have a solution to that, or I don't know which way is right or wrong or how I'm supposed to, <laughs> how I'm supposed to understand all that. That's just been an observation of mine. So. Really, and, and very fair. Uh, it's, it's very fair, uh, Connor. Um, it, it raises a question. This is what historical study does for us. It raises a methodological question. If you, if you remember back to lecture one, which I'm sure everyone does and has pristine names for lecture one, everything that was talking about. I had mentioned that studying thoughts and ideas outside of our own culture causes and compels us to think differently about our place in our culture. It's called situation, uh, situatedness. Uh, and, and that's what Connor is sort of raising. So thankfully this isn't hermeneutics class where we need, I need to land on something, but I can at least, at least talk about it at a petty level because it's a historical theology class. Should we pattern our exegesis after the New Testament writers, or are we not allowed to do so? So in other words, New Testament hermeneutics, Paul would not pass. Let, let me just be very clear here. Paul does not do historical grammatical exegesis. He does not do it. And so does that then give us license to do 
do so, or are we still compelled to do historical grammatical exegesis to deduce what is Paul's intention in using the scriptures this way? It, it, it at least raises that question whether or not that is permissible. 1980s, uh, 1985, this was a this was a very hot discussion. This this sort of question. Richard Longenecker, uh, uh, Richard Longenecker, come on, who did he debate? Oh. Anyways, one said you could, one said you adamantly should not. And that then filtered into 1990s, early 2000s, hermeneutical discussion. We're now in 2010, 2020s, uh, whereby that discussion is not even Sort of, it's moved well beyond that. Outside of uh, 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 outside of like seminary studies, outside of sort of hermeneutics one one books, it's sort of normalized to, to pattern New Testament to pattern hermeneutics after the New Testament patterns. But it does this this discussion about the trusting does raise that question for us. Yeah, uh, maybe one or two, two more items. Matt, can I can I ask you to, to chime in? I only reason I'm asking you to chime in is because I know Augustine Sermon 52 has stood out to you. Augustine Sermon 52 is Augustine's reading of Matthew 3. We'll come back to that next week. But I would love to sort of hear sort of what did it do to your reading patterns and sort of how did it kind of shock value uh, reaction to it. Yeah, so, um, well, in Church History 1 that I took with you, I'd actually writ, writ, written on Augustine. So Sermon 52, I'd actually use as a, as a resource. And 52 is all about the Trinity and different ways Augustine's going to describe it. And it, I mean, it mainly stuck out to me was how how scripturally not only rich it was, but how like philosophical it was. And so like the combination, I think you gave like a term or like a saying on like, of like recovering the pastor or bishop theologian. Like they aren't, they aren't separate things. And so it seems like a lot of these guys are, are constantly like, constantly being that sort of, that sort of guy, the bishop theologian, pastor theologian. Of themselves based on 
He's understanding the teaching. Super helpful. Um, exegesis that is not just meant to a right reading. Exegesis that also lends itself to prompting people to walking towards a spiritual life. Okay, can I? I'm gonna I'm gonna bust a theological bubble real quick. Open up to first uh, first Timothy. Uh, sorry, second Timothy chapter three. Second uh, Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. What doctrine am I about to talk about? What what doctrine is it? The what of scripture? inspiration of scripture? Inspiration of scripture. Go ahead and someone just read these. Verse sixteen. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's so good. Okay, the whole aim of inspiration. Is to get to a right reading. No, 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 no. The aim of inspiration is for what end? The man of God, the spiritual life. So the aim of good readings then ought to lead to that. I think we often look at this text and say, Scripture's inspired, therefore we want to run back to its source. True, right? I want to say that that's true. Let me just hold my hands up. Scriptures are inspired, fully affirm that. I wonder though if that conversation has been tilted on its head, not exegetically. Because in this text, it doesn't run towards the origins of Scripture. Yes, God has inspired it. But this text is about what the inspiration is supposed to affect. And what does it affect? Character, the qualities of a human, the qualities of a reader. Good readings aim towards a particular end. Uh, uh, I'm going to read verse 17 for us. The man of God may be, be complete, equipped for every good work. There it is. The inspiration aims for a holistic life. The inspiration of scripture is not always about manuscripts, right? Inspiration of scripture is the effect of this document. What is the effect of the scriptures? Inspiration leads to a changed life. Inspiration is not just about what's the best manuscript. What was the original document, what was that original process like? Yeah, good. Uh, so, um, Aaron, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, so these are excellent assumptions. Excellent assumptions. I hope what we have seen generally is that fanciful, though it might be, is not the first footing. Uh, anymore. Like, I hope that that has been overturned. Patristic exegesis is deeply rooted in the ancient grammarians. And so their reading matches their culture of reading. And so it's really thought through. Um, 
How many of you heard the debate of the Antiochians versus the Alexandrian school? How prominent is that? How familiar are we with that? Okay, so I, I want to be very generous uh, in this. No patristic scholar today holds to that. You will often see that in New Testament books or hermeneutic books, but it is not necessarily a clear-cut patristic division. Often the debate is Antiochian thinkers were literal, Alexandrian readers were allegorical. So for example, Origen of Alexandria or John Chrys uh, uh, Chrysostom, right? They, the two read scripture very differently. So at face value, yes, different regions read the scriptures differently but it is, uh, 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 un, it's an unhelpful taxonomy to say all Alexandrians read allegorically as if they don't read literally, and all Antiochians read literally as if they never read allegorically, right? That dichotomy uh, has not proven to be true as more primary source evidence has, has come out. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and jump right into this. I wanna sort of give us some big, broad patterns as we think through patristic exegesis, think through patristic exegesis at large. Uh, I hope before I die to write a 300, 400 page book on patristic exegesis. It is one of my big, 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 big visions to do uh, in my life. And so what I wanna do real quickly, oh goodness, this looks awful for you. Oh my goodness, give, give, me, give me a second really quick. That looks terrible. Um, I threw in notes, but I didn't format it. Let me format it really quick. Um, or you just won't be able to read that. That looks, that looks awful. Um, but what I want to do is I'm, I'm going to try to um, multitask here. What I would prefer to do uh, is talk about what patterns do the fathers use and what is the profile of the reader. Let me say that again, because there's going to be two questions that we're going to shoot for. What is or what are the patterns of readings? What are the patterns of readings and and <clears throat> what is the profile of the reader? I don't think we think about the role of the reader in current scriptural exegesis. Here's what I mean by that. If we do proper historical grammatical exegesis, whether you're of faith or not of faith, can you come to write readings of the text? The fathers would say no. Fathers would say absolutely not. 
Not only that, they would say, if you come to a wrong exegetical conclusion, or if you come to a wrong theological conclusion, part of their polemic would be, you're an unvirtuous person. So it's a matter of virtue that leads to good readings. It's a matter of virtue that leads to good readings. Okay, so two kind of big categories that I'm going to try to navigate as we do this. Before we dive into Cyril, here are kind of two big pillars that I want to put uh, in place. What are the patterns of exegesis that they do? And what is the profile of the reader? What is the profile of the reader? Uh, what we are ignoring, what we are bypassing, is situating early Christian exegesis into the life of ancient grammarians. So that's what we're jumping over. So what that lecture would do is say, what the fathers are doing is already in a complex vision of ancient Roman grammar. So this is what they would have been trained already to do. So when we say it's fanciful, that typically means there's no rules to it. There are tons of rules that are guiding them, that are informing how they're reading and, and, and what type of readings that they're offering. So that's what, I'm, that's what we're bypassing. Okay, so let's look really quickly. I want to try to set up a couple of categories for us when we look at the question of method. I, I want to put some categories in place for us when we talk about the idea of method and patristic exegesis. So one of the essential difficulties in speaking about early Christian scriptural exegesis is addressing the method of readings. What language do we use? What narrative do we assume? And how do we describe and then assess early Christian reading habit? Right? This is the act of a historian. We have modern language trying to describe ancient patterns. So for example, is figurative exegesis a category derived from ancient literary conventions, essentially a Christian term that Origen would have employed, or is figurative exegesis a term later developed to describe what the fathers were practicing? You see the dilemma? what they describe themselves doing figurative exegesis. Figurative is different than figural and is different than allegory. So in other words, when we use language to describe the fathers, we must assume a few features. First, how the fathers use literary conventions ought to be understood on their own terms and not through anachronistic uh, 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 assumptions. That is allegory. What is allegory? How would we typically define it right now? How would we define it right now? What is allegory? Define it. It has a double meaning. Say that again. It has a double meaning. Double meaning? Uh, flesh that out a bit. What do you mean by double meaning? There's the initial of what it appears to be, but it has a deeper meaning. There it is. Okay, there it is. Jonah was hitting on it. I think our current understanding of allegory is 
Here is a physical object, single meaning. Its second meaning is going to reach and extend towards a spiritual idea. That's often what we mean by deeper meaning. So now the question is, when the fathers talk about allegory, is that what they mean by that term? It's very complex once we then moving forward. Second, while the fathers do not assume literary terms in a monolithic way, terms ought to be held loosely in order to see the broader network of ideas. In other words, in other words, Basil's uh, hexameron. Basil's hexameron. There's a new translation. Of, uh, I, just, I just saw uh, the other day. There's a new translation of Basil's hexameron coming out. It's his interpretation. It's his reading of Genesis 1 through uh, 1 and 2, where he's looking at a six-day, seven-day creation. In Basil's work, he has an anti-allegory polemic totally diminishes the value and the use of allegory. You read his other works, you'll realize pretty quickly he does allegory. So you have to, you have to let authors be a little bit more dynamic in their use of terms. How is he practicing allegory, but he's now condemning allegory in the hexameric? Like there's, there's layers to it. If there is someone who needs help finding a THM thesis, I would love to oversee uh, uh, a thesis on Basil's hermeneutical theory. Third, if modern terms are used to describe ancient figures, we must be generous in how we apply such terms. For example, typology for the fathers is not synonymous with how modern readers utilize typology. Tupas, Tupas. I forget his first name. Someone looked this up. It's a St. Andrew's dissertation that was published. You can find it on Amazon. Last name is Davidson, and it's on typology in the scriptures. He's trying to define what is the use of Tupas in the scriptures. However, here's now the dilemma. When Cyril uses the term tupas, does he mean the same thing? Typology now, <clears throat> typology now requires biblical theology, requires biblical theology and a historical timeline. For example, temple. Temple is like uh, uh, typology 101. It's often suggested that Genesis 1 is the first proto-temple. It then grows and morphs in the history of redemption. Exodus 40, we have the tabernacle, presence of God coming in. We have the Solomonic temple. We then have the glory of God leaving the Solomonic temple. And now we come to John 1. John 1 talks about how Jesus will tent among us in whom all the glory of God dwells. Like this is typology 101. 
this morphing of a tent tabernacle idea and it shifts and chains, changes over time. That is a very modern rendition of typology. So we have to ask this question. When they say typology, is that what they're doing? Is that what they're doing? So we'll probably continue using the language, if I can use that in quotes, of current hermeneutical theory to describe the fathers, but in both cases, we must strive to describe the sense of what the fathers are accomplishing as much as we can on their terms. Let me, if I can, just provide a quick set of uh, categories for us and try to paint the history of research here. Just really briefly, this is going to be a skim, uh, kind of a, a, a brief uh, flyover. When you do scholarship, if you are planning to do a THM, you will want to have a good history of research section. Whether or not it makes it into your thesis or not, you knowing the history of research is going to be valuable for the clarity of your thesis. So that's sort of what this is right here. Just want to kind of give a quick flyover. So since the 1950s, scholars have differed on how to categorize patristic methods of reading scripture. Many still refer to Henry de Lubach's landmark four-volume work, Medieval Exegesis. Go and look this up on, on Amazon. This is still a landmark work, 1950s. And in this framework, uh, he offers the following, that the father's literal, typological, and allegorical readings are the forerunners to the medieval fourfold method of reading. This is a very standard type of division for medieval studies. For medieval studies. Manlo, <clears throat> Simonetti, Michael, and Michael Graves simply display a twofold division between the material and the spiritual. And so that twofold division is still quite common in patristic exegesis. So I, if you can feel the dilemma, do we put them in three categories? Do we put them in two categories? Charles Canagaisier, um, Charles Canagaisier right here. This is uh, it's really interesting. Michael Haken, um, one of my mentors in patristic studies, we, we talked this weekend, um, just reminded me again to think in terms of generation. Uh, like who is my academic grandfather? If Michael is my academic father, his father was uh, uh, John Egan. John Egan's grand, uh, father was Charles Canagaisier. So it's kind of neat. Just there's a Canagaisier mentions typology and allegory as further categories underneath spiritual readings. Simonetti places moral and typological under spiritual readings. So you can see how just even scholarship is differing on, on how they, that's essentially what I'm trying to show us. Francis Young, another book that I would recommend to you, Francis Young, uh, uh, in Biblical Exegesis and the Formation of Christian Culture. She writes the following, uh, or sorry, she displays the following of three different categories. 
Her threefold categories are literal meanings, types of allegory, and types of typology. Those are her categories. I met her in Oxford probably two to three years ago. It was incredible because she was, Francis Young, was really the first person to really begin opening my eyes on patristic exegesis. I saw her walking by, I about fell over. I had like a, a very celebrity type of moment right there with her. And she's just eating, she's like just eating a, uh, uh, like a pastry and drinking tea and totally just taken off guard. I, I wish I could undo that moment. It was like a total act of stupidity on my end. Uh, the book you're reading, the book you're reading, John O'Keefe, Rusty Reno, they display some similar categories to Young, right? They offer a threefold reading in terms of intensive readings, typological readings, and allegorical readings. And allegorical uh, readings. I'm going to skip past this. And I really want to try, to try to offer, how do we categorize types of readings? How do we categorize types of readings? So this is my humble attempt at trying to put together categories on how to make sense of what type of methods do they do? What type of methods do they do? So if you see this, I am highly influenced by Francis Young, and then I will be influenced by two other scholars that I haven't mentioned on here, uh, Lewis Ayers and Peter Martins. Hopefully, if you've been around me enough, these are names you're starting to recognize as I mention them. Lewis Ayers and Peter Martins, in addition to Francis Young, have influenced how I have begun to categorize. So I would still categorize through a threefold uh, type of division, threefold type of division. The first one, what I mean is material, literal, and or use of literary connections. This is highly textual. This is highly textual. So this is either looking at philology. Peter Martins has looked at the philology of origin. Um, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal work that he did, Oxford University Press, looking at the philology of origin. Also attached to that is what the Greek fathers would say of historike, looking at the history of the text. So this is not allegory at all. They're just trying to understand what's the history of the text and then looking at the literalis. What are the literary conventions and lexical connections of words? If I'm going to use Reno and O'Keefe, it's probably intensive readings. That would be right here. Everyone tracking with me so far? Sort of. <laughs> this is like a crash course, not only on hermeneutics, but then a crash course on patristic hermeneutics. Here, go ahead. Philology is going to be the textual study of Greek and the Greek formation of words. Text criticism would, would, be qual would qualify within the field of philology. 
So that's what I mean by both material and sort of like physical readings. Physical readings is meant to be in opposition to spiritual readings, right? Okay. Immaterial or spiritual exegesis or what we would call the scopos of reading strategies. This is part one of immaterial readings. It's still tied to the text. If someone picked up on what Aaron said earlier in class, that sometimes readings led to a spiritual life, that will be the next part. That's not this. This is simply a textual reading, but it's not a literal reading. So what are we doing here? There's kinds of allegory. There's multiple types of allegory. There's multiple types of typology. Uh, who is familiar with prosopological exegesis? Who read the Kent Hughes, uh, not the Kent Hughes, the Kyle Hughes book, right? Kyle Hughes will talk about prosopology. What is the use of persons? reading persons, reading Trinitarian persons into the text. I think the book of Hebrews does this. Um, the Lord said to my Lord, right? Who's the my and who's the Lord, right? You're inserting Trinitarian persons. And then partitive, ex excuse me, partitive exegesis. Partitive exegesis is what a lot of my work on Cyril does. What is partitive exegesis? Does anyone know off the hand? What part is divine nature and what part is actions? What actions is divine in divine nature and what is human Bingo. But it's in connection to reading scripture. So you make those moves. Uh, uh, partitive exegesis could be otherwise named as two nature exegesis, two nature Christology. Uh, Christological exegesis, you're reading scripture and you're interpreting it in light of the ontology of the sun. And then we are going to move on to part two, but this is element three, immaterial spiritual exegesis. But rather than textual, it's what the fathers call, or they use the term theoria. Yes, this is an actual Greek term that they use in their scriptural exegesis. Theoria. You see that Greek term, Aaron? Yeah, good. It has a connection to the idea of contemplation. Attached to this is virtue. Attached to this is contemplating the divine life. Attached to this is the promotion of a virtuous life. Anagogy. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, in his Song of Songs commentary, offers an anagogical reading of the songs. What is anagogy? The lifting up of one's soul heavenward as they read the scriptures. In other words, scriptural interpretation that has the aim of taking the soul and moving it upwards towards heaven. 
Gregory of Nyssa on the life of Moses. Google this real quick. Uh, look up in Amazon, Gregory of Nyssa. Jean Danilou uh, provides a wonderful translation of this. <clears throat> the life of Moses. Gregory of Nyssa, his first half of reading the life of Moses is a historique reading of Moses's life. A historique reading. It's looking at the pure historical literary narrative of Moses's life. Part two is an anagogical reading of the historique of Moses. A historique reading, just simply defining what happens historically. Moses goes up a hill. Anagogical reading, you in your reading of scripture, likewise in divine contemplation, go upwards on the mountain to meet with God more intimately. Some would call this a spiritual reading. Some would call that an allegorical reading. But the fathers had a name for it. That would have been anagogy, anagogy. All right, didn't even touch on tropology. Uh, didn't touch on other items as well, but there are more to this. Any questions, right? Any questions? Keep in mind, I'm not advocating for any of these, right? I am just simply trying to describe what is the huge matrix of the fathers. That's what I'm trying to do. Any questions here? New Testament, and like, what was the languages they were trying to do exorcist with? Yeah, like, what, what are they actually reading? They're reading, they would have the Greek New Testament. Uh, they would have versions of the Greek New Testament. Uh, they would, some would not have the full canon. Some would have partial versions of the canon. Um, others would have uh, uh, features of it. However, Augustine. You've taken my Greek class, we've read quotes from Augustine about his, his Greek abilities. What are they? None. Barely any. He can't read Greek. Augustine can't read Greek. Right? You who read Greek, you're already one step above Augustine. Give yourself a pat on the back. <laughs> That's about the only thing ever that will accomplish better than Augustine. <laughs> so just the New Testament? No, they would have the Old Testament, but they would they wouldn't be reading it in Hebrew. They would probably be reading the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. Yeah, reading the Septuagint. which is what those in the New Testament would have been using most likely as well. Right? About eighty to eighty-five percent of the quotes are Septuagint. Even Jesus's quotes, right, from the Old Testament. Yeah, and that's now then the debate. Does uh, anyone take New Testament one? Do they? Do we talk about ipsisma verba versus ipsisma box? Is that a familiar? I don't remember that. Okay, totally fine. Do the gospel writers quote what Jesus is saying, like in his actual language, or do they then interpret it and put it in Greek? Mm. Right, ipsisma verba, ipsisma box. It's a debate. But on the Trinity book by Augustine, he does he does list a lot of Greek words. In yes, it. he does. He can't read he can't read and translate, but he would list it. He struggles with it. Oh, he struggles with it. He even struggles with his Latin uh, because he's a Punic. 
he's he has two descents to him. He's not fully Latin. Um, uh, Justo Gonzalez gives him a modern term. He calls Augustine a mestizo. Right? He's of two kind of two sort of backgrounds, and so he even criticizes his own abilities in Latin, not necessarily his reading abilities or his translation abilities, but his uh, pronunciation. So I'm going to go back to something we talked about a little bit ago. Um, when you talk about this idea of virtue and how the father saw someone coming to a wrong understanding of the text as, as being due to a lack of virtue. Yep. Okay, but then how would they explain an obviously non-virtuous person coming to a correct understanding of the text? Like Con conversion. Conversion would be key. Uh, uh, so like or, if, or proper coming to a proper virtuous life. And I know this is like mixing time periods here, but like what I, what I mean is like somebody at Claremont McKenna College who's you know a liberal denies inerrancy, denies virgin yeah. birth, denies all miracles, that kind of sure. stuff, right? Sure. And but they come, but they have a particular text, and they do come to a right understanding, or at least how the New Testament would have interpreted it, and they can say that this is how that would have happened. Right. So this is a non-virtuous person, religiously speaking, totally. how in this, and they're not claiming conversion, totally. how would they then look at that and say, how would they explain them coming to a correct understanding by doing a, appropriate exegesis? Totally. They would say they don't. They would still say they don't. Here's why. True uh, exegesis le leads to a virtuous life. I see. Okay. Therefore, without virtue, it doesn't matter what reading they come to, it's still wrong. Okay. And so, but it does give to a very different point between us. Is right readings a proper life or is, is right readings an objective good reading? Right? Because there are people down the road that can come to objectively good readings of the scriptures, we would then add theological readings on top of their maybe social or historical readings. Fathers would even entertain it. There'd be no Why? Because there's no spiritual um, uh, metaphysics attached to their exegesis, nor is there um, uh, any virtue attached to their life. So in that way, they're probably more narrow than we are. Okay, any questions? Any questions, any questions, any questions? Okay, method, right? We're gonna talk about two big ideas here. We talked about method in terms of what are they doing? Let's take a break and then come back and say, who is the profile or what is the profile of the reader? Okay, let's take a quick five. Jump back into this. Let's jump back into this. I what I would like to do is simply talk about this for about forty minutes, so that we can dive into Cyril uh, before the, before day's end. So let's jump into the concept of ideal readers. What what I mean by ideal readers is not who should you become, but what were the idyllic readers in their mind, uh, who were the ones who read scripture? Often when they start describing the reader does this, often it's a self-biography. Very, very often they're self-describing themselves when they're describing ideal readers. Uh, what, what I wanna talk about in here is not the process of good and bad readings based on method, Right? We're not even going to be talking about method, but we we're going to be talking about the role of 
virtue, the role of virtue. I want to just show you real quick how this topic in my academic study affects the life at uh, our church. Um, each term, I will teach or someone else will teach sort of a crash course on preaching to our interns. Um, come on, where is this? Where are my notes? I can't find them. I'll find them at break time. But I have a section in my crash course notes on uh, the role of the preacher prior to the act of reading. Um, it's important to become a type of person. Um, and I want to read a quote. No, I should never do this. There they are. Can you see that? Yep. Okay. So here is sort of what I'll do. I'll develop this preaching and teaching uh, crash course notes. You can see sort of what I do with them, teaching what is an expositional preaching, a theology of preaching, hermeneutics, how to structure, and then just generally talk about my process in that. Um, but I want to show you where this peaks its head. Right here. The virtues of the interpreter and the exegetical virtues. So this is very much influenced in my larger study of this topic that we're about to jump into. And then I find this like magical quote by C.S. Lewis. What you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends upon what sort of person you are. That is a money quote. So in other words, in other words, the virtue that you have prior to the act of reading determines what you're willing to see in the text. That's sort of the, the, general, the general gist uh, of that idea. Oops. Okay, so coming back to uh, the ideal reader. Uh, Jop Mansfeld surveys a variety of technical works in late antiquity, ranging from grammatical, rhetorical, legal, and medicinal material, medical material. As late antique uh, authors reflect and determine the ways in which they want to be read, Mansfeld summarizes a total of 10 different items that reflect preliminary issues to peer into the reading culture of late antique. Uh, and so Mansfeld here, uh, even though they could be, uh, they appeared in a variety of ways and works, Mansfeld just offers these tenfold lists as a set of initiatory or prolegomena items that late antique authors would include. In other words, the beginning of a book will often have comments that reflect one of these 10 items. So sometimes the author will detail what is the theme or aim of the purpose, what is the place, uh, its usefulness, the meaning of uh, the title, its authenticity, the division of parts, the section, 
uh, of a particular discipline or genre to which it belonged, the clarity or lack thereof of the treatise. Like you can see so far, like these first eight items are all about literary theory. Then look at number nine. The qualities required of the would-be student or teacher of this text. That right there is the virtuous person, right? What are the qualities that a person would have before they come to this text, right? Whatever Mansfeld was referring to here. Peter Martins is a name that I already mentioned. Peter Martins uh, insightfully notes uh, the following <clears throat> on this similar list. He says this, these preliminaries provide an important window into late antique exegetical cultures for they indicate the guiding interpretive concerns of generations of grammarians and rhetoricians who taught their pupils how to study authoritative texts. So this is a helpful phrase, late antique reading culture. That is an important phrase for what we are talking about. If you've noticed, it's a way for me to try to position how we then talk about patristic exegesis. Patristic exegesis fits into, fits into uh, reading culture of late antique, of late antique. So I have a few comments here only because I stripped portions of this from my thesis. So you can see that I want to talk about the dialogues on the Trinity. I don't want to do that here in class. We'll do that a little bit later, yada, yada, yada. But this is what I hope to identify or to talk about. So there seems to be a proper order that emerges Right There's ethics, inward ethics, external ethics, the virtues of a person, virtues and happiness of uh, uh, virtues and happiness training precede the creative exegetical training. Let me be very clear here. I'm doing historical theology, not trying to offer a constructive vision. However, I think there are items possibly to learn here. In other words, what this statement means is that I think in a late antique culture, before someone was given the tools to do readings, they needed to become a proper person to then handle those tools, right? You don't hand a saw to an unvirtuous person. The person has to be virtuous before you hand them a saw. And that's sort of the, the logic of this notion here. So there's an order in the training. Man, Jonah, that was a good, good yawn. Feeling all right, brother? <laughs> I looked down on my notes and you're like the only face that I can see. That was so good. In the of it. Yeah, so good, John. Go to just take up, get a stretch. All right. So Mansfeld introduces to his readers the initiating process that students would encounter the kinds of volumes occupying late antique curriculum would aim to produce a kind of person prior to teaching them the art of grammar. No need to worry about what that Latin Greek phrase. 
So these concerns in late antique, broadly speaking, require that a virtuous person prior, uh, that a virtuous person is, is required prior to engaging the intellectual life. <clears throat> so here's what Mansfeld offers. So I'm gonna be reading this quote. Mansfeld lists the curriculum that early Christian writers would have read uh, or, uh, uh, sorry, not early Christian writers, uh, what uh, early grammarians would have read in the education process. Many of the fathers were educated in the universities. This would have been very normal process for them to go through. In order that students be prepared for the strenuous efforts required of them when devoting themselves for a number of years to study of these difficult uh, works, they were often given first a preliminary moral instruction which purified their souls of greed and passion and taught them what are man's primary obligations towards his fellow men and towards the fellow or towards the other gods. Keep in mind, we're reflecting on ancient Greek or ancient Roman education practices. That's what this is. Um, I am not a henotheist, just to voice that. So to that end, this is still Mansfield talking, to that end, the pseudo-Pythagorean golden verses or the moral handbook of the Stoic philosopher uh, Epictetus could be used. A number of Aristotle's so-called uh, um, so-called school writings, that is to say his systematic monographs and treatises came next. The Aristotelian works themselves were read as a preparation for the study of a selected group of Plato's dialogues, which were read in a definite sequence. The first dialogue to be studied was the greater Alcibiades which demonstrates to its readers that man's real self or essence is his soul. The last dialogue to be taught was the Parmenides, which was interpreted as dealing with the highest metaphysical realities. The study of the categories itself was preceded by that of a little book by the influential third century Platonist Poifre, Platonist Poifre which itself was called isagog, that is introduction, an introduction to the categories or rather to the whole of logic as an introduction to the whole of philosophy. So from this initial description, from this initial description, Mansfeld highlights how Plato's greater uh, Alcibiades, Pythagoras's golden verses, and Epictetus's Enchiridion occupied an introductory training in virtue. Late antique students would first need to become students of classical virtue before they were trained in literary theory. So this is why virtue serves as the base and then the training comes thus if people came to wrong readings, what did they go after? The base of their training, virtue.
as Pierre Hadot reflects upon ancient philosophy, he regards the following. He says, philosophy was a way of life, both in its exercise and effort to, to achieve wisdom, and in its goal, wisdom itself. For real wisdom does not merely cause us to know, it makes us be in a different way. This is really helpful, right? This is a really helpful vision of wisdom. Wisdom is not just knowing, but wisdom is a way of being. I actually think he's right in this. I think the scriptures reflect that vision as well. Wisdom then as a way of life, which brought peace of mind, inner freedom, and a cosmic consciousness. But with regard to reading practices, Hado likewise situates the practice of reading within the framework of late antique spiritual exercises. This is fascinating. I don't know if any of you have ever looked at ancient Roman education practices. There would be a teacher and you would be required to write out Plato's dialogue. You'd be required to write them out. And then the teacher would give interpretation of them as you would go through them. So not only would you learn how to write, you would learn the way of life, the way of virtue, right? According to that model of living, all the while learning about grammarian, uh, 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 to become a grammarian. That was the first stage prior to, be, uh, to then becoming uh, a, a rhetoric uh, within the rhetoric stage prior then to the philosophy stage. So Pierre Hadot says this, reading, however, could also include the explanation of specifically philosophical texts, works written by teachers in philosophical schools. Such texts could be read or heard within the framework of the philosophical instruction given by a professor. For the listener, this entire ensemble could be a spiritual exercise. With regard to reading, we should add that exegesis, whether literal or allegorical, was one of the most important spiritual exercise at the end of antiquity, both among pagans and Christians. So thus, to read and to express virtue are two activities that mutually benefit the other. To read is a spiritual uh, practice that requires a person to have been trained in virtuous formation. So this is Pierre Hadot just sort of reflecting on uh, late antique philosophy and late antique uh, reading. Just to figure out where I'm at. Yep, we're good. Hado's line of reasoning provides, I have two more paragraphs and then I'm gonna open it up for discussion. So sort of write down a few questions if you, as you have them and then I'll show you where we're headed. Hado's line of reasoning provides a beneficial hue to this argument. Philosophical moorings do not begin with a set of theoretical dogmas, but initiate from ethical and virtuous, and a virtuous the virtues of the person. Ancient philosophy, uh, this is also a way of life, a way of being. So virtues and a virtuous way of life 
serves as the matrix by which philosophical ideas are derived. Pierre Hadot again says the following, the choice, the choice of a way of life has not been located at the end of the process of the philosophical activity, like the kind of an accessory or an appendix, but on the contrary, the choice of a way of life stands at the beginning in a complex interrelation with critical reaction to the other uh, existential attitudes with global vision of a certain way of living and seeing the world and with voluntary decision itself. So as Hado comments on the process of reading and writing, students would learn philosophy through commenting on highly allegorical uh, texts. And it's through this process then that a student in late antique would traverse through the process of spiritual and learned progression. He says this once more, philosophy, so I'm right here in the middle of the page, philosophy was conceived of as an ascending spiritual itinerary which corresponded to the hierarchy of the parts of philosophy. Ethics ensured the soul's initial purification. Physics revealed that the world was a transcendent cause and thus encouraged philosophers to search for incorporeal realities. Metaphysics or theology ultimately entails the contemplation of God. Thus, the virtue initiated right here. Thus, the virtue initiated the spiritual process to ascend to further contemplation of God. Ancient philosophy would give focus to the virtue of a reader so that they can contemplate God as their telos. In addition to the spiritual process, beginning with ethics to the contemplation with God, the process of reading texts would continue to beckon the spiritual virtues of the philosopher says this once more. Moreover, each commentary was considered a spiritual exercise, not only because the search for the meaning of a text really does demand the moral qualities of modesty and love for the truth, but because the reading of each philosophical text was supposed to produce a transformation in the person reading or listening to the commentary. So again, virtue is this base. Virtue is the first step towards intellectual training. To, to throw this out there, I think we often looked at gifted people first for their virtue, and then we try to make sure they're virtuous. I, I think this is something to at least consider, right? Consider in this whole process that you can train a virtuous person, but a person who has gifts with no virtue, they would call that a dangerous person, right? Because they don't, you don't, what is gonna wield them with their knowledge? Virtues is what provides cohesion and safety and clarity for them, them expressing their own gifts. So as we continue, uh, conclude this sort of section, the ideal reader and virtue, the virtue that pre Includes particular readings are not mutually exclusive items. And so as, as Hado suggests, the virtue of the reader 
provides an initial framework for, for particular readings and theoretical paradigms to exist. Philosophy as a way of life then presumes a kind of person prior to the complex theories of ideas. Even as Hadot reflects on the spiritual process of reading in early Christianity, he notes how origin models quite well a Christian way of life in the spiritual requirements of the reader. He sort of says this about origin or sort of reflecting on origin. Reading texts is a spiritual process closely related to the progress of the soul. The philosophical notions of spiritual progress constitutes the very backbone of Christian education and teaching. Christianity proposed an exegesis and a theology analogous to pagan exegesis and pagan theology. But because it was a style of life and a mode of being, just as ancient philosophy was. And, and so then after this, we could do type, uh, right? What is the first text in this virtuous paradigm? Right, when you have a new believer in your church, what do you hand them? Maybe a Gospel of John track, maybe, I don't know, there, for, for a while, uh, I was at a previous church, we would hand like John Piper's The Only Way, right, to someone. Like you have these works that just are kind of introductory into the life of Christianity. This right here would be the introductory work into a life of the mind. And it's, not, it's, it's a work about virtue, right? So this would have been one of the first works that early Christians in the university would have read. So that informs then the way that they're doing Jesus. I want to come back and sort of give a, a broad comment about that in the sense that Christianity proposed an exegesis that was analogous. Essentially, what he's meaning there is that there's a similar process. The role of reading texts is not unique just to Christians. And so the analogous part is what they do is what we do. They read text, we read text. They're trying to do a way of being. We're trying to do a way of being. That's what he means by analogous there. Okay, I want to open it up. Questions? Go ahead. So would that be like Neoplatonism then? Yeah, uh, platonic. Like Platonism? Neoplatonic thought? Uh, well, when we look back at ancient philosophy, there's, it's not monolithic. There's multiple schools. So uh, Plato. So some of this would be that. Some of this would be that. Because sometimes I hear that term, and, and it's difficult. Sometimes it seems like a derogatory term when they talk about it. Other times, they make it seem almost like it's a positive thing. And I can't yeah. quite tell if we want Platonism in Platonism. Platonism yeah. If we want it in, in there or if we don't want it in there. I don't really know. Okay. Can I put an unsettling thing in your stomach? All early Christian theologians, pro-Nicene era, were essentially trained within a Platonistic philosophy. Something similar to what you're not saying, but what you're really saying. Yeah. But that is then the process of <clears throat> Christianizing. There, you, you, we went over Trinitarianism. Was there anything in there, like big picture? It's like that is heresy. That doesn't sound like the scriptures. Probably not. But, yeah, but go, ahead. go ahead. I mean, just to be a little bit of a contrarian, I guess. I mean, is that because mm -hmm. they it's been so established for so long because of their Platonist thought, 
that we that we now think that because I mean it's it's really easy to superimpose our ideas onto our text, um, and I'm, we're not the first generation guilty of that. Um, and therefore, I mean, if that's just been passed down and it's more a result of their Platonist thought rather than it's the text speaking for itself, because there's so many areas where we try to do that today. We're like, well, it's just so obvious in the text, obviously. And then Arminians say that, and Calvinists say that, and they kill each other. So that's exactly right. And then we're like the only ones that see it. It's right. so obvious in the text. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's an easy answer to this. Okay. Yeah. Probably not. There's not an easy answer because uh, let's look back at your training. Let's look back at your schooling. Who of you took uh, history in college? Right? You're influenced by that at some level. Mm -hmm. Right? You're influenced by that. But I wouldn't say your education in the university is now clouding your judgments on scripture, right? And so, but what it did do is that it, your English class gave you enough literary theory to now make sense of what to do with language. So to just turn it on its head, I could look at you and say, you're, you're influenced by your USC degree in literary theory. Like that's clouding how you read scripture. But like, we, you, you come out of that. Right, you come out of that. Basil, let me just tell the quick story of Basil. Basil was taken by the university, right? Totally taken. Came home, uh, and the way that the text describes him coming home, a little bit arrogant, a little bit cocky. Most <laughs> university students. Yeah, yeah. And what happens? Uh, his sister, who's his sister? Macrina. Macrina. Sits him down and explains to him the simple way of God in the scriptures, in words. Did Basil just go, I'm just going to go ahead and set aside all my training, and I'm now going to start it right now. So at, at some point, at some point, uh, we had to come to grips even that with, that with us. Um, we're influenced by something. Um, and so this whole language of tabula rasa, right? <clears throat> Do we come to the text with a clean slab on the same? Right? That would be what that would be what I would suggest. Somehow our social upbringing, our heritage, who we read before influences what we see. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Aaron. I, I think this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. the secular public yeah. education that kids yeah. are getting. Yeah. She seems so non-virtuous. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so good. I mean, just to, just to have them think about the truth and what truth is. I don't even think I don't even think they teach them these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's um, and I could see why a lot of the church fathers were educated in the system and they they got taken into Christianity so readily. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just a simple not a simple job, but I mean logically or even like. Systematically, just a little jump. Mm -hmm. Not a whole. It isn't. No. Yeah, it isn't because it's already a life of virtue in that, like it's that language that they're trying to yeah. that they're trying to do. Even non-Christians are trying to do this, right? Have qualities of modesty, love, and truth. Right. right? That, that sounds very Christian, right? And, and so there's there's tons of the overlap. Um, and one of the one of the big takeaways that I like to just kind of put this uh, at a very like a clear thesis type of 
posture here. Before given the tools of literary theory, they were first given the tools of virtuous life. Because the idea is that if they didn't have virtues, they would abuse the tools. The virtues that compelled them to act with love, modesty, and otherness with the tools. Like that's the whole premise of growth and virtue before, before grammatical training. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Oh, that wasn't a handbrake. I saw a handbrake too. What I'm hearing makes me think of the like the uh, they're kind of arguing that new converts or believers shouldn't be left to read the Bible on their own. Like you mentioned, giving the Book of John to somebody, they would likely come to wrong conclusions or not know how to understand the words of the Bible. <laughs> Can I tell you something really funny? Uh, new believers, what were they given? Some of them were given the Didache and not scripture, right? Give me a quick way of life. Oh, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Perfect. Now, here are the scriptures, right? And the Didache would be like a quick ethical teaching of the scriptures. Like it doesn't, the way that the Didache postures itself is that it's a continuation and reflection of the biblical. It would be very much like that previous church that I was a part of, right? You know that green small book by, it's like a John Piper, very small book. It's what we would get to, it's what the church would get. And so, like, yeah, like we give the book by uh, Greg Gilbert, it just big gospel. Um, That's, because, exactly right. and, uh, That's exactly right. But I mean, it, I mean, it kind of makes sense. That, I mean, it does, as much as we would say, yes, everyone can read the Bible for themselves. I mean, how many new Christians do you, I mean, how many? People who have been Christians for 20 years, do you know, actually spend much time reading the Bible other than maybe a quick devotional in the morning or a proverb a day or something like that? I mean, it's not it's not a common thing. So to give them something that may be more digestible, and it also right. seems to lend itself to that idea of the, the, the catechizing of people, because that is when they really started digging into Scripture with these yeah. people, and they spent two years doing it. The beginning of their Christian life uh, leading up to their baptism was that, which makes a lot of sense, because... It makes yeah, you don't know how to digest this yet. That's right. Uh, and it's not that, I don't, would it, would it be to say that they didn't trust them with it though? Or was it more just so that they weren't, they weren't left going, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming. I don't know even where to start. Yeah. Because I find that with new Christians now, wondering like, I have no idea where to start my Bible. Yeah. And maybe to, to put more modern language on it, what do untrained people do with the scriptures? They, they don't know what they're doing. Here's what they'll do. Verse uh, a day. <sighs> Right. All right. That's my verse of the day. Right. If, if, if the scriptures are like this God given thing, why wouldn't that be natural? Right. Mm -hmm. And so we would say, no, 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 don't, please don't do that. Thank you for reading your Bible. <laughs> right. Thank you for wanting to read your scriptures, but please don't do that again. Right? <laughs> and so non trained people do things that aren't proper. So a little bit of catechizing is important. Right. Catechizing is not just transfer of knowledge to transfer of law knowledge, but it's a way of life, way of life, right? It's a philosophy. This is why Christianity early on was viewed as a philosophy. It's not this lever of wisdom as in head knowledge, but remember wisdom, it's a way of being. Christianity is a way of being in the world. This is it. Hmm. Um, Could you, yeah, um, like, I'm not sure if I understood correctly, do you clarify what late antique 
philosophy is? Late antique philosophy would be Greek and Roman philosophy. So like classics. Right. Late antique, more particular, is about 200 AD all the way about up to 600 AD. Late antique. So I was wondering like what virtues were they trying to with and how are they different from the doubly called virtues? And how were the like working out for them? Galatians 5. We know that as what? Galatians 5. What's in Galatians 5? Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. Spirit. Yep, fruits of the Spirit. So here's to normalize Galatians 5. That's a virtue list. Lists like that would not be abnormal in late antique literature. It's not abnormal at all. So for example, uh, pick up bets, B-E-T-Z, on Hermeneia, the Hermeneia commentary on Galatians. In that commentary, he'll give a laundry list of Greco-Roman works that have similar lists. And so this notion of, of virtue is very prominent in late antique philosophy. It's not abnormal. Uh, it's not abnormal at all. Yeah, good. Uh, Daniel, Joe, we doing all right? Chris, Darren, any questions? Okay, so far, Jonah, Matt, Jared. Okay, good. Yeah, go ahead. Dr. Willing. Yeah, go ahead. So when, when did they, uh, when, did they uh, when, when did they stop teaching the virtue first? Oh, now, that is such a good question. Right? When did they stop teaching this? Uh, man. You see it in the medieval era. You'll see this in medieval um, uh, training. Uh, a lot of uh, late antique philosophy still influences medieval uh, patterns. I don't know if I want to call it like the Reformation era. The modernism is the big bad guy. Like at least modernism for sure. It's, it's out of the picture, 17, uh, 17th century, 16th century, it's done. Um, because at that point, uh, uh, education totally takes a huge shift there. Uh, so if we can put fuzzy boundaries around it, anywhere from uh, uh, 13th all the way up to 15th century, we're starting to see some shifts. And I know that that's a big swing of the hand, and I hate doing that. Um, but you can see how different this type of educational model is different than today's. Like, I feel like that's what's hitting us the most here in the class. Um, but early Christian thinkers still went to the university. A lot of this stuff they would have gained at the university. Like, that's why we're looking at this. What were some of the assumptions that they would have had coming into the text? Yeah, good, good question there. Yeah. Anybody else? We had to read the Aeneid when yeah. I was in college. And so good. I think a lot of like Virgil's writings is really helpful to maybe 100%. not necessarily read all his books, yep. but just kind of get an understanding of how they saw the world and how they what they saw search. Yeah, Victoria, that's exactly right. Virgil, uh, Virgil definitely would have been in the uh, late antique curriculum. 
Let's say, how much does or does not like Constantine and the growth of Christianity as a normative factor affect what the virtues are and maybe a Christian understanding? Yeah. <laughs> Here's what it probably does do. When you look at the New Testament, there's like one vision of Jewishness, right? Jewishness is just sort of crashed together as anti whatever Jesus is doing. But if you were to be a historian, Jewishness is so multi layered, right? Just even given the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are two different Jewish sects, added to that, sectarians, added to that, zealots, added to that, the Qumran communities. Right, so, for example, what this is now probably doing is the Roman world is very multicultural. What Constantine allowed then was the Christian philosophy to then exist. Yeah. Right. To at least be out in the public and not underground. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, like, since the kind of study the same virtues, would that in some way lead them to the Christian God? Say that one, say that one more time. Because they were trained with the similar virtues, right, in the Bible, yep. Galatians. Yep. Would that somehow lead them to God, to our God? or Yeah, uh, no, it wouldn't, because it's the pantheon. One of the, it, here's, a, here's a research question for you. What is the views of Christians through the eyes of Romans? Christians were viewed as atheists. Why though? Why? We said the pantheon does not exist. So Christians were no, known as God deniers. Uh, and so in that sense, no. Greco-Roman virtues would not have lended itself towards Christianity essentially because of the main metaphysic is God is one. No, no, no. God is pan. God is all. The pantheon. Okay. Let's go ahead and take a quick five, and then we'll come back and we'll actually look at one figure and one pattern of their exegesis. All right? Yeah. Quick five. Mm -hmm.